Good evening again. Hey, we are continuing our series on doctrine, um, and so I will be continuing that this, for us this evening. Last week, we looked at the doctrine and the implications of the church, and it's hard to begin to talk about the church without talking about worship, which is exactly what we'll be this evening. So if you have your Bibles, meet me at Genesis, excuse me, meet me at Romans chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand up. Keep it held high. One of the guys that get you a copy of a Bible. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Please keep it. Um, if you do own one but you forgot it, go ahead and take a Bible and uh, just place it on the shelf on your way out. Romans chapter 12. Great, a great text for us as we look at worship. Um, I'm excited about this because worship is one of my favorite topics. Um, though often I think of worship mainly when it comes to us gathering, though it's so much more than that. Um, great opportunity for us to look at how we as a, as a church, how we as families and as individuals can cultivate a heart for worship. So before we go into the text, I just want to let you guys know, uh, I talked to Justin. He was here this morning. He's healing pretty good. Uh, he hopes to and thinks for sure, his words, not mine, that he will be here next week live, whether Garth's holding him or he's on a stand or something. So he will be here. He says he misses you. He loves you. And... Um, I don't think he does, but I'm just saying that he told to say that, all right? You guys, let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, we thank you so much as we gather this evening. Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to come to your word and to hear from you. And so, God, that's exactly what we ask. God, we ask that you would quiet our hearts, our minds, as we, as we see and understand and learn only by your spirit what it means to worship. And, Father, what, what it means for us to worship so often, Lord, myself included, I, I think of worship as a time in which we gather together, and yet your scriptures are clear that it's so much more than that. And so, God, I pray that you would humble us, you would direct us, and that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus is talking to some scribes, and they're trying to test Jesus, and so they come to him and they say, in essence, who, who do we give this money to? Should we pay taxes? And so Jesus looks at him and he says, whose image or whose likeness is on that coin? And, he's, and they say it's Caesar. And he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So if, his, if the likeness of Caesar is there, give him to him. And then he turns and he says, but whoever has the likeness of God, have that person, that individual, that person, that group, give themselves to God. That, that, that in itself is the very beginning of worship. It's understanding that you and I, we're creating the image of God, and being created in the image of God, we belong to him. It is our act of duty to give ourselves wholly and fully to a loving, holy God. And so what we're going to look at this morning when it comes to worship is what is worship, what distorts our worship, and then what transforms it. So what is it, what distorts it, and what transforms it? Genesis, excuse me, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I got to pause there. As always, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is a therefore, therefore? Meaning the author is trying to connect something that he says to something that he's about to say. And so just kind of just peel back for a second. Romans, excuse me, Genesis. The Bible says, <laughs> Romans chapter 1 through 11, in essence, is doctrine. It's the teaching of who God is and who we are. So Romans chapter 1 reveals the character of who God is. It shows how me, you, and all of humanity, that we, we would rather worship created things other than the creator, leaving us in a position that we and ourselves have no righteousness. So Romans chapter 3 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. And yet this holy God enters in and makes a way, makes it possible for us to be redeemed. 
so us to have recon- reconciliation with this holy God in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 lets us know how we can live this life, empowered by the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us and cries out, Abba, Father, on our behalf. And then lastly, Paul concludes in, in Romans chapter 11, in the last verse here in 36, he says, For him and through him and to him are all things. Be the glory forever. Amen. And now he starts in Romans chapter 12, and he says, Because of the gospel, because of who God is and what he has done and made salvation possible for all who would believe, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The Apostle Paul just, just takes his understanding of what worship was, excuse me, what sacrifice was in the Old Testament, in which they would bring a ram or a goat or a pigeon to symbolize that because of their sin, because of mankind's sin, someone or something has to die. And what he's saying now is taking that same language is because of the gospel, God himself, because of his love for us, he sent his son Jesus who died. And now if we believe in that, our proper response would be to give our whole bodies. And when Paul says bodies, he's not just talking physically only, but mentally, emotionally, intellectually, our wills, our desires, and ultimately our affections completely given to this God in the response to what he's done for us. That's worship. At the end of the day, biblical worship is taking who God is and what he has done, seeing it, and responding by giving all of yourself to him. This is 24-7. In fact, Harold Best, who wrote a book, Unceasing Worship, he talks about how we are unceasing worshipers, all of us, Christian and non-Christian, atheist and agnostic, believer, unbeliever, we all worship because we are created, you and I, in the image of God, We learned about this in week one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in triune trinity. And they're constantly delighting in the other and giving themselves to the delight and for the delight of the other person. The Father to the Son and the Son to the Spirit and the Spirit to the Father and so forth. And he says because we are creating their image, we are made not for worship, not to worship, but worshipers. That we will worship. So broadly speaking, worship is giving ourselves to someone or something. So the question isn't, will we worship? The question is, to who or what will we give our affections to? To who or what will we give our desires to? What will draw us to itself? Paul clearly in Romans 12, chapter 1, is saying that if we are Christians, it should be to God. And yet he knows there is something that distorts this. There's something that gets in the way of this. And he goes on in verse 2. In the first part of verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world. The ideal of conform means to be shaped. It'd be like little kids who get Play-Doh and they, and they take Play-Doh and they mold it to whatever way or whatever shape or form that they want it. Paul is saying, do, do not. That's a negative imperative. Don't be conformed to the age or the worldview or the culture or the society of our world. And let me just tell you this. It's inevitable. It's going to happen, whether you're a Christian or not. Being a Christian, saying you love Jesus, does not make you immune to the fact that you are being shaped by the culture which we live in, every single one of us, whether positively or negatively. And yet Paul makes a command, a negative command. Don't be conformed to this world. One author said this, that that the culture is like the rain. No matter what you put on, you're still going to get wet. 
and, and when we get conformed. Here's what I mean by it just happens. Um, my son and my wife and the other son, we just start trying to do these things called family worship. Sounds really, really holy. It's really, really awkward. And so we do it on Mondays. And so what we decided to do, we'll sing some songs. Um, Caitlin Anderson, who does a phenomenal job at overseeing our children's ministry here, she puts together the notes that we have, we send to her before, and she makes curriculum, her and her team, that the students or the children are learning the same thing that we're learning. And so we take those notes home with, with our kids, and, and we sing the songs, and, and, and we talk about putting on eternal things, and it's just weird. Right? Every once in a while, I'm looking at my wife as I'm singing, doing the, the, the hand motions, and my son's running around. We're trying to do instruments, and my wife and I are both like jocks, and so instruments are all bad for us. So basically, we have two wooden spoons that we let our son run around and just hit stuff, um, <laughs> like worship. Right? And, 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 then, and, then, and then when it comes to singing, it, it's, it's weird because I can't sing, and she's worse than I am. And it's just, it's just weird. Yet, we're trying to teach our son to shape him about who Jesus is. But the last Monday when we were done, I said, Noah, so do you love Jesus? He goes, nope. <laughs> he goes, I love Thomas, the train. <laughs> now, now we, we, we didn't pray to Thomas. We, we, didn't, we didn't sing to Thomas. There was no songs to Thomas. And yet, he, he, he loves Thomas. Every night when we go to bed, he prays for mommy, daddy, and I always say, who else? Two people he prays for, Lightning McQueen and Thomas. <laughs> Will they be in the kingdom? We don't know, right? <laughs> but we didn't have to teach him Thomas. That's something he's just going to catch. And so when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, know this. More things are caught than taught. More things people don't have to explicitly teach you, you will just catch, you will just know. And so whatever it is, there are things that will vie for the affections of your heart that will distort your worship towards God, because you will worship. It just depends on what will you worship. And the biblical language for this, when our, when our worship is distorted, worship that's gone wrong is called idolatry. And it's offense to God. It breaks the first commandment. It's placing something else other than Jesus Christ as your hope, as your meaning, as your value, as your purpose. What drives you, what motivates you. And most of us, to be honest, it's good things that we make the main things. I mean, there's certain things that we run to, that we seek comfort to, and that, that are destructive, whether it be alcohol, whether it be, whether it be drugs, whatever things that we can have addictions to, or there, there are certain things that our idols express themselves in things that most people would say, that's, that's terrible, you embezzle money, you're a cheater, you're a liar. But at the end of the day, most of us are pretty good people. We, we take good things and we make them the main things. So it'd be like me saying, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an African-American male. I love it. It's great. I think, I think it's the best thing for me. Not you. Four of you. <laughs> there's, there's, for me. Now, if I elevated that and said, now, if you're an African-American, if you're black, that's it. And all of a sudden, I, I, I elevated, I exalted the black race, and anything else is inferior to that, that'd just be weird. And practically, it'd be weird because I'd probably be fired. You guys wouldn't like me anymore. My wife wouldn't like me. And my kids would like me half the time, right? <laughs> now, that, that's something on a big, big scale, right? That's how what leads to racism. Um, but on a, on, a, on, a, on a personal scale, on a more individual scale, um, when we take good things and make the main thing, is sometimes we can find ourselves doing all the right things that Scripture says, and yet, ultimately, we're still bowing down to some form of an idol. 
perfect example for me, about four or five years ago, I was, I was in a Bible study with some guys, and someone said a Tim Keller line that said that Christians don't only repent of the things they do wrong, but the reasons of why they do right, and it hit me that this whole time that I'd become a Christian, I'd been walking in purity and changing my language and not being the jerk that I was, that at the end of the day, I, can't, I couldn't really say if I ever truly repented of it. Because what I did was, in one form of life, I, I worshiped the approval of the people that I was with and comfort, so I went to drugs and booze and sex and rock and roll, and all I did was, now being saved by Jesus, I took the approval of these people and the lifestyle that I had to live now to a Christian lifestyle. And so I, I was questioning myself, did I really stop those things because of my, my response to how much God loves me or because I had accountability buddies that I didn't want to have to say, yeah, I did it again. And I think most of us are there. That we find ourselves going from one thing to the next thing and because it looks good, we can't tell. Because, but what worship is and where it starts is at the heart. That's what idolatry is all about. It's about your affections. It's about your affections being distorted and detoured around who God is. And we find God substitutes or God counterfeits. It's, it's settling for less because we don't believe that God is enough. And yet every single one of us that have gone towards things, we know how empty they are. I would be a fool to say that they don't satisfy because they do. They just don't satisfy completely. They just don't satisfy fully. Tom Schrader, lead pastor in Gilbert, says this all the time. Sin is fun unless you're doing it wrong. And it's true. And so to say that it doesn't satisfy is a lie. It does satisfy, but you will come up empty. It's like climbing up the ladder and realizing every time you get to the top that it's tilted against the wrong building. So when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, what he's talking about is be careful. Know that if you don't do anything, if you do not respond to the life, death, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ and him sending his spirit, if you don't respond to that, you will be getting conformed. And so the, the, the deal is not um, stop your desires or, or stop your affections because that's not the issue. And, and in fact, your desires and your affections, those are God-given. Your desires and your affections are something God's given you so that you may praise and worship God. The, the issue is how do, we, how do we get to a point where we can fight idols? Because they're coming at us all day. There's so many things that vie for our heart. I think it was John Calvin who said that the human heart is a factory of idols. I mean, there's millions and millions of things that are vying for our heart. So what do we do to battle it? What transforms it? Paul continues in the second part of verse 2, after saying, do not be conformed to this world. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul says the way that we do it is to be transformed. Um, to be conformed means don't do anything with the gospel. Hear it, hear what Jesus has done, hear that he's come, he's placed his love on a group of people, people who he loves, he's loved you, he's died for you, and then say, I don't want any part of it. You'll be conformed. To be transformed is to respond to the gospel, is to see intimately and even personally that Jesus came and he died for you and he lived for you and he's given you his spirit and empowered a life for you to worship him to be the man, to be the woman, to be the child, to be the student, to be the dad and mom that God's called you to be. To be transformed first and foremost starts with God applying to your life the work of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And there's a response that we have to that, the part that we play in it, and it's continuous. Because idols will be coming at our hearts and vying for our affection, the way that we'll live this is continuous. And Paul says to be transformed means to renew your mind. And as you continually renew your mind, you'll begin to see what is the will of God. 
You'll be able to discern what is the will of God, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. So in essence, to renew your mind means to worship. Um, When the Bible speaks of worship, in both Hebrew and Greek, both terms, there's two groupings. One group has the ideal of paying homage, of bending your knees, of an awe or reverence. And so there's a static position in which you stand before a holy God and you're struck at his holiness and his greatness and his glory. And then the other grouping has the ideal of service or labor. So it's a verb, means there's an action. So when, when it comes to restoring or transforming our worship, it's responding to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in such a way that we meditate on God and get this, that he becomes the supreme, the, 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 the number one object of our affections. That we meditate that God himself is our treasure, and then we get up and we do something about it. That, that, that we meditate on who God is and what the Bible says about God and what's true about God. That, that, that the Holy Spirit empowers us and then we get up and there's an action. We do something about it. And there's a few things that I have for us if we're going to grow and cultivate a heart that renews and is, is renewed through worship as we seek God and live out the lives that God wants us to live and worship. The first thing, might surprise you, but the first thing is we worship through singing. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the left to Psalm chapter 30, verse 4. Um, I picked this one because, to me, one of the best worships that I see, worshipers that I see in the Old Testament is a man named David. Um, King David was a man that was after God's own heart, and this was not what people said about him. This is what God said about him, and yet he was a big, big, big sinner. We'll hear from him again later, and yet he was a worshiper, and for me personally, it used to bother me when I would come to church services, and then, and then people would sing, and, and I would think, like, to be a dude, to be a man, you don't sing. You just sit there and do this. <laughs> I'm theological, son, and it's like, no. David, David's way more of a man than you. David, like, killed people. Never mind. So da- David, David's way more of a man than I could be, and yet he writes, these, he writes these songs. Verse 4 in chapter 30 says this. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Give thanks to his holy name. If we're going to cultivate worship, if we're going to be worshipers 24-7, we have to be singers. And not just, not just here collectively, but here collectively when we gather on Sunday. Um, but we'll also when you mow your lawn or rearrange your rocks, whatever it is that you have. When, you, when you're with your family, if you can't sing, I just told you, I can't sing. My wife's worse, but I can't sing. But, but it's not about your lips or your vocal cords. It's about the song that you have. That's God-given. If there's ever been a group of people who should sing and sing loud, it should be Christians. If there's ever, ever been a group of people, it should be. Here, here, if you did some biblical his, history, you would see the people of God were passionate when it came to worship through singing. Passionate. Because there's something that you see about the Israelites, especially in the Old Testament. They went through suffering. They knew what it was like to be free. When the people were taken out of Exodus, they were redeemed by God, they sang. When, when David is in the midst of his sinful life or he's been chased by enemies, he sings. When the people were in captivity in Babylon, they sang of a God who they knew could rescue. They sang. Even in our own history, African-American Christians, when the gospel set root, what did they do? They sang. They didn't have written theology. All of, the, all of their theology was through songs because they knew what it was like for a God to be able to redeem a problem is to me that, that if we don't sing, I think it's a lot, how about this? It's easier to talk about God than it is to sing about God. 
So, so for me to come up and be someone who preaches out of the Bible, it's not easy for me to cognitively teach you the truth about Scripture. And yet, I think it's a lot harder to sing because it's not just what you know about God, but it's actually taking the truth about God to your soul. It's taking the truth of Scripture. It's taking your intellect and your emotion ultimately to your soul. And so when people sing, it means something. And so if we are a people who have been freed through the gospel, ultimately freed, rescued from the bondage of our sin, we have something. We've been given a song of salvation, ultimately in Jesus Christ. Amen? Harriet Tubman, who, who was a slave abolitionist, great woman, Christian woman, um, used, used her freedom and when she escaped to go back to rescue other people. And she talks about how her time was doing the Underground Railroad and when she rescued slaves. And she said this, I freed thousands of slaves and I would have freed more if only they knew they were slaves. I, I wonder if we don't sing because we're still in bondage. B- because we still think somehow the victory is not ours. And yet, the gospel is true. It is. You may struggle. You may sin. That's why so, there's songs of confession. There, there's, there's songs of adoration. There's songs of help. There's songs of praise. Sing, I'm not saying you got to be the zippity doo die guy who's skipping along, whistling and singing. I, I'm just saying if you've been given a song, we got to sing it. If we're going to cultivate worship, the first thing we have to do is sing. The next thing when you're cultivate worship, stay in Psalm, is we have to be people who are in Scripture. Um, if you turn, to, turn over to the right to Psalm 19, Psalm 119 and 105. Very, very popular passage for those of you guys who have been around uh, the church for a while. It, the psalmist says this, speaking of God's word, it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Meaning, meaning the word of God will help us direct us, guide us in worship because this, this Bible ultimately is not just a book full of printed words. This is actually, literally, perfectly the word of God. That God meets us and he speaks to us and he speaks to us today, today primarily through his spirit primarily through his word. He takes the word of God, ultimately illuminated by the spirit of Christ, and God speaks to us. This cultivates in us a desire for God, to see God, to know God, and how we're going to worship him in reverence, meditate on him as our treasure, and then respond and do something about it. It's the word of God. And and, and lastly, with that, um, where we cultivate in singing and reading scripture, and this third one is uh, in praying. Turn all the way to your right, the first Thessalonians chapter 5. This is the Apostle Paul speaking again now to the church in Thessalonica. First Thessalon- excuse me, First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, he says this. I'll let you get there. Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. I love that. He says, Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. So in essence, don't stop praying. Now, Paul is not communicating, just spend time, don't go to work, don't do anything, just stay in your house all day and pray. No, he's saying as you go about work, as you go about school, as you go about relationships and friends, be in a spirit of prayer. So so pray in private in your time with the Lord. Pray underneath your breath, in your mind, when you're with meetings with people. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends. Pray for those who don't know Jesus. Pray for those who know Jesus but don't live for Jesus. Confess. Ultimately, go to God over and over again. I think this is a discipline that's lacking in the church. I've never met the guy or the girl that says, hey, yo, how's your prayer life? Oh, amazing. I'm really good at it. I've, I, I've never met that person. 
And yet, this is not something to guilt you in the prayer. This is something, again, it develops in us, cultivates in us a heart for worship, that we're constantly reminding ourselves, God is with us. God is near. God can. God does. God will. He's constantly with us. And so it's the spirit of prayer. And then Paul goes on to say in there, this is the God's will. Like, this is his desire. There's a sense of invitation where God is saying, talk to me. Not because he, when he needs, he's bored or something. He says, just talk to me. Just see what I would do. Pray without ceasing for all things and rejoice. Pray in all circumstances. And so these three lump together, singing, praying, and to me, reading, they all go together just in this, this section because my mom used to always tell me that you're only as good as the company you keep. So what that is is basic, basic sociology 101, that you will look like, act like, smell like the people who you hang out with. Um, you're going to probably dress like the people, listen to the same music. You become like them because you're with them so much. It, for us, those of us who place our faith in Jesus, if we are to resemble, to reflect the character, ultimately the likeness of God restored in Jesus Christ, we've got to be around him. It, it would be hard for us to cultivate in us a heart for worship if we're not spending time and around and, and in tune with God's spirit, in tune with God's word, in tune to the life of Jesus Christ. And I'm not just talking quiet time. I'm talking all of life, where, where, where Christ in himself is on the tip of your tongue, that we begin to look like, we begin to act like Jesus Christ. The, the last two things that I have is, is, is the first one is it's pretty convicting. Turn your, turn your Bibles to the left to Isaiah chapter 1. And as you turn there, just know this. When it comes to worship in the Old Testament, when God himself begins to go after his people for their lack of worship, oftentimes it's not because of their behavior and what they're doing. It's usually in their behavior and what they're not doing. And so this, this, the, the, the fourth point that I have in how we can cultivate worship is loving all people, but especially the least of these. Especially the least of these. In the Old Testament, they're usually categorized in three, in three people. There's an orphan, there's a widow, and there's a sojourner. The sojourner doesn't have a place to lay his or her head. They don't have a home. They don't have a stake in life. The same with the widow. No one to take care of her, no one to watch after her, to provide for her. And then the orphan doesn't have a name, doesn't have a family. In essence, they don't belong. They are what we would call the least of these, the people who live on the margin. And God has specifically in his law for his people to be able to serve these people. We saw this clearly when we went through the book of Ruth and how gleaning and laws like that were there so that the sojourner, the widow, the orphan may have an opportunity to be able to be cared for. And yet, clearly we see throughout the Old Testament scripture is that God's people neglected this. And in Isaiah chapter 1, in verse 10 through 17, God gets after them for not doing this. Just, just hear this as I read. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough burnt offerings and rams and fat of, and fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required you of this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling are convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. 
Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring just, justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Here's what God's saying. You, you can come to a church service. You, you can drop some money off in the, in, in the offering box. You could join a redemption community. You could be faithful and lead Bible studies. And yet, if you are not serving, if you are not thinking about, praying about, actively caring for the least of these, and I get it, the least of these are kind of relative because we are, well, who are the least of these amongst us? They're here. They're around us. But, but God is talking about here, your actions may be looking okay, but at the heart I can tell because you're not doing this. And I got to pull back here just for a second, only because there's an idea sometimes that people think that, that God only cares about the least of these. God only cares about the lowly and the prostitute and the widows. He only cares about them. It is clear. God calls us to love all people because God loves all people. He sets his most intimate love when he gives his son Jesus. And so he expresses his love by giving. And so God loves all people, all. And we should serve and care for all people. That's an act of worship. And yet we should especially care. And the reason why I say especially is because my guess is that's where we're weak. We should especially care for the least of these. Whoever they are, it's identifying them. This is convicting to me. As a church of people that we gather, but 900 people, I wonder how well we do this corporately and how well we do this as families and as individuals. So Wednesday night, we're going to bed, and my wife asked me, what are we doing to serve and care for the poor? And I, and I said a couple of things, some things that we've done in the past and some things we're doing now, but ultimately I looked at her and I said, sweetheart, you know what? Not much. Not much. And so when I read passages like these, I'm not convicted because they're people who have things that I don't have. Though it's sad, I'm not convicted because there's, there's kids who have no clothes and my kids have more clothes than they need. That, that's not what convicts me. What ultimately convicts me about this is because I say that I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to reflect the character of God. And I know, I know spiritually every single one of us were in these positions. Every single one of us were a sojourner. We had no place to go. Experientially, we were always traveling and never arriving. We, we were like widows with, with no one to care for us, no stake in like, life. And we were like orphans. We don't have a name. We don't have an identity. And we try to find it in different things. And yet, God, in his infinite love for us, he gave Jesus. He gave us a stake. He who was rich became poor so that we who were poor now could become rich. What convicts me is I know that I've been given the same thing and I'm supposed to be, I'm blessed to be a blessing. That's, that, that's just me. And, and I'm not saying that none of you guys care for the least of these. All I'm saying is wherever you are, start somewhere and grow. Wherever you are. And all of these. Worship is something that's continuous. It should be ongoing, praising God. And so, so wherever you are in your scripture reading, start somewhere and grow. Prayer, start somewhere and grow. Singing, start somewhere and grow. And the least of these, start somewhere and grow. There's plenty around us. I was just racking my head, who, who are the least of these? I, I think of easily, just, and this is not a political kick, this is just truthful. The least of these, I think, I think of the, the unborn child. They have no voice. I, I think about the many kids that are in foster care. Now, all of you win, may not be called to adoption, but maybe we are called to help people who have adopted. Maybe, maybe you start by babysitting. Maybe you start by providing for them. There's somewhere we can start and say, God, how can we be involved? How, how, how can we shed the light of your character to the people around us? Because again, this is not just some political deal. This is not some social deal. This is the character of God, the very God in whom we trust, 
the very God in whom we believe, and the very God who has loved us and redeemed us and saved us. Amen? That's what it means to be light to the world. The, the, the last thing that I have here is for us to cultivate our, our lives and our hearts in worship, reading, singing, praying, loving and caring for all people, especially the least of these. And the last one is the discipline of confession and repentance. I, I think as Christians, this is something that we assume and yet we're not very good at. Um, confession and repentance. Confession is different than repentance. C- confession is saying what you did wrong. Confession is confessing that you're a sinner. Repentance is actually, ask, actually asking God, asking God to do something about it. Um, repentance has the idea that you're not just sorry for your sin, but you realize whatever it is, whatever idol, whatever it is that you've drawn, your, your, your affections were drawn to, that you've given yourself to, that the fundamental flaw there is that you didn't believe that Jesus was enough. When we begin to see and discipline ourselves, and this is something that takes a lifetime to be good at, that repentance in itself is turning from whatever it is that was a God substitute and turning to God who fully pleases. So for me, turning from my idol of human approval daily in my life to saying that the acceptance of people is never good enough because it would never be good enough. It can't last. And turning to Jesus where I realize I have the ultimate acceptance, the ultimate approval, the ultimate love, that God doesn't look at me as my, as my sins deserve. He's not looking at my ways and saying, I, I'm t- accepting you, I'm choosing you and loving you because of what you've done, because of your performance. But he says, I love you because of what Jesus has done. That's repentance. It's constantly saying everything that we run to is a counterfeited. It will never fully last. And it's returning to Jesus and saying that Jesus is enough. It, it, it's confessing, saying what we did, but repenting and ultimately saying, Jesus, you're enough. What I bring to the table is my sin and what you bring over and over again is your grace and your love and your mercy. And, and I'm going to close with this scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn to the left from Isaiah to Psalm 51. Again, this is David writing, King David. Again, a man after God's own heart. This, this guy understood confession and repentance. When he writes this psalm, this is in response to the fact that he had committed adultery, basically raped a woman, and then to hide it, like many of us do with our own sin, to hide it, he, he had this woman's husband killed. Again, God says this, before this and after this, this is a man after my own heart. And David comes to the Lord, and, he's, and, and, and in verse 1 he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. He appeals God ultimately to the character of God, who has steadfast love, that has said love that we talked about when we were looking through the covenant, that love that God pursues and never relents. He constantly goes after his people, that there's nothing you can do to escape the loving kindness of God when he pursues you. David, David goes, because you are a loving God, because you are a forgiving God, because you are a faithful God, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2 says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I love that because my sin is your sin and my sin. We know our sin is always before us. We relate to David. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, sin first and foremost is not just something that we do horizontally to other people. First and foremost, it's an offense to a holy God. He says, so that you may be justified in your word and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not blaming his mother. He's saying, I am a sinner. He says, I was born a sinner by choice and by nature. I'm a sinner. He's not saying this is somebody else's fault. This is not my social economic background. This is not my dad. This is not my family upbringing. This is me. Like, this is my sin. 
And behold, you, verse 6 says, Behold, you delight in inward truth in my inner being. Teach me your wisdom in the secret place. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You notice that the only thing that David brings to the table is his sin. And he trusts in a faithful, loving, holy God who does have to execute justice, but yet a God who loves and forgives. He trusts in God's ability to forgive. He says, watch me, cleanse me, purge me, and I'll be whiter than snow. He, he doesn't say, if I just take a few time before I confess it, if I wait a period of time before it goes by, I'll get better. He says, no, you have to do something, God. And he closes in, in, in verse 8, 9, and 10. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. It's my favorite verse. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's the very heart of worship. The word create there is the same word that, that Moses has used when he writes Genesis, and it says that God created. It means to create out of nothing. David comes utterly dependent upon God. The very heart of worship is knowing who you are before a holy God as a sinner and bringing your sin, your life before God without any excuses. And again, this is not a one-time act. This is daily. God, against you and you alone have I sinned, and yet we pray, create in me, create in us a clean heart and renew our spirit. That's the very heart of the gospel, and God is faithful to do so. He washes us as white as snow. Amen? Yes, and go ahead and close your Bible. We're going to pray. You have an opportunity to be able to respond here in just a moment, be able to respond in hearing God's word um, as Ryan comes and leads us in communion, and then being able to sing together and respond to the love and grace that we found in Jesus Christ. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much God, one, because we, we understand our position only by grace that before you and in your sight, Father, we are the least of these. There's nothing that we can do in regards to appeasing you, uh, as, a pars, uh, as, as a regards to making ourselves right before you. We have nothing to give, and yet, Father, you give freely of yourself and in your son, Jesus. And so, God, in that, we are thankful. And God, in that, we worship you. God, I pray right now, Lord, that we would be able to understand and fathom that worship is not something that just happens here, but yet it does. But it's something that happens in all of our life. God, what I pray, would you just give us for our, for our next 30-something minutes here, God, an encounter with you. And that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would hush our hearts and our life, that we may be able to devote ourselves fully and pleasing to you. And God, that we would be able to do this, not just here in these last few minutes, but take what we do here and live it out Monday through Saturday. God, we need you. We do confess that what we bring is our sin and our inability, but we do trust that you've given us your spirit to empower us to conquer sin in our life. Lord, we are unashamedly Christians. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.